This is the Sterling Vineyard Sundays podcast. We are a church passionate about encountering Jesus and sharing his love with our city. To find out more about who we are, visit our website at sterlingvineyard.co.uk. All right. Good morning. Yeah, I have a real foghorn voice, so might not even need this microphone. Morning, Sterling Vineyard. It's great to be with you. Um, we send you greetings from far off distant Falkirk. Um, actually, it's, I, was up in, um, I was up in Aberdeen this week at Catalyst at their leadership um, college is what they call it now. Um, up there earlier this week, and a bunch of the staff were all around, and Sterling Vineyard was mentioned um, quite often while we were there, and it was all positive, and just a lot of excitement about you guys, so just to let you know that among the Scottish um, Vineyard churches, you are seen, and that you are loved, and that people are praying and um, rooting for you guys, Um, and I actually, um, I'm a bit upset when I came this morning, because you guys have like pan of chocolate and cinnamon rolls and all this. In a Falkirk, we just, like, the fanciest it gets is a jam donut. So I'm definitely taking that back and a uh, bit of competition on the donut front with, with vineyard churches in Scotland. Okay. That's, that's me getting all my stuff out of the way. I am really delighted to be with you, my wife Sandra and my daughter Naomi, my son Jack. And I wanted to speak to you guys this morning from... An, a, a weird story in the Bible is that there's loads of them. I mean, you, you hit them just about on every page. But I want to speak to you from a weird story in the Bible this morning. Um, and it actually coincidentally happens to be um, what many people consider to be the fundamental story in Abraham's life. But it's an odd one. And I think what I'd like us to think about this morning is how, what do we do when it feels like the promises of God are not happening in the way that we think that they should. And so how do we bring that to God? And how does God respond back to us? So I'm going to pray really quickly, and then we'll we'll get into it. Lord, I thank you that you are present here. And in fact, before... Any door was opened in this building this morning, before anything was set up, before any people came into this room, you have been waiting to be with us and to speak to us. And we confess to you this morning that we come with all of our thoughts and all of our doubts and all of the complicated emotions in our hearts, and we say to you that we trust your word And we trust you to speak to us today. So we invite you, Lord, to reveal yourself and to shape our hearts and our minds and our lives into the image of your Son. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn to Genesis 15. If you don't, we've put it on the screen for you anyway, so don't worry. Oh, is is this mic being funny? He doesn't like the reverb on it. 
Okay, Genesis 15. No button on this. I think he has to turn it on at the back. One, two. One, two. Hey, there we go. Cool. Okay, after this, the, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. And then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. And he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. That's when you applaud the preacher for getting all those names correct. You can tell I practiced. Okay, so... This passage, is, it's weird, right? That's a, strange, that's a strange story. And this passage begins with God coming to Abram in a vision and telling him not to be afraid. Now, why would God feel the need to tell Abram not to be afraid? Well, up until this point in Abram's narrative, God has made continued promises to him that he's going to possess a vast land and that his offspring are going to become a great nation that would eventually live in the land. And Abram has actually trusted God's promises. Um, in fact, at the very beginning of his narrative, God calls Abram out of his father's household. And this is quite a big deal because as um, his father's eldest son, Abram would be assured of an inheritance of land and of wealth. Um, and so, um, to leave his father's household behind would be to kind of leave that promise of inheritance to take up God's promise that he's going to have this land and have all of these children that are going to live in it. And um, then right before this story, 
um, there's, a, there's an amazing thing that um, Abraham has just led a small army of servants in his household against these local kings because his nephew Lot has gotten in trouble. He's kind of been kidnapped by these kings. And so um, Abraham has this responsibility for Lot because Lot's father had died and Lot um, has come with Abraham as his nephew. And so Abraham is, in all intents and purposes, like a father to Lot. So he has this responsibility for him. And when Lot gets in trouble, he goes out to rescue him. And he has this run-in with these kings. And Abraham defeats these kings um, and rescues his nephew Lot. And so I think um, Abraham must be thinking at this point, what's going on? I've got this kind of son figure that's not really my son. And I've just defeated all these kings around me who own all the land around me, but I have no land. And so Abraham's in this position where he's maybe thinking, have I done the right thing to trust God? Can God's promises actually be relied upon? And so God comes to him and says, don't be afraid, Abraham. My promise will be fulfilled. But here's the thing. Abraham has heard this before. Abraham has heard God saying to him, I give you this promise. And um, interestingly, this is the first time in the whole story that Abraham actually speaks to God. Up until this point, it's all God speaking to Abraham and Abraham just listening and doing. But this is the first time that Abraham replies to God. And what Abraham says to God can probably best be described as a protest. Abraham is not comforted by God's promise. He's not comforted by the assurance. He looks around at his situation and he sees that he has no land and he has no child because God has done nothing to change the physical situation of his wife, Sarah, who's not been able to conceive. And the closest thing Abraham has is his nephew, Lot, who's off doing his own thing, or a servant called Eliezer who's in his house. And Abraham weighs God's promise against the realities of his situation, and I don't think he's convinced. He's looking around at the way things really are, and he's saying, I've heard this promise, but check out the reality. So God reminds Abram of the specifics of this promise. It won't be a servant that's going to be his his offspring. He's going to have his own flesh and blood son as an heir. And sensing Abram's inner conflict, God takes him outside, and he points him to the stars, and he says to him, "Um, if I'm able to make all of this, then surely I'm able to make the promise that I've made to you a reality. And so in this moment, it says that Abraham believes what God says. But here's the thing about this kind of faith, this kind of belief that Abraham's exercising here. It isn't an easy or a passive belief. It's not just like, oh, okay. It doesn't come simply. It's a belief that comes from wrestling with God, from raising a protest, from living in the agony of the conflict between his present experience and the Word of God, and in the end, choosing to place his faith in God's promise despite what the circumstances say. And it's that kind of faith that God calls righteous the kind of faith that engages and wrestles with God, even in the difficulties. And Walter Brueggemann, the theologian, puts it like this. This text announces afresh what it means 
to be the human creatures we are created to be, that is, to be righteous. It means to trust God's future and to live assured of that future, even in the deathly present. Abraham chose to believe God's promise over his own limited explanation of what was possible. Uh, but there's more, because God, God continues the conversation and says, oh, by the way, remember, there's this promise that you're going to possess the land that you see all around him. And I think Abraham's got his tail up a bit now. And he's like, oh, yeah, well, uh, I don't have any land at the moment, so how will I know that I'm going to possess this land? He raises another protest. You need to give me something, a little bit of something, God, to show me that this is true. And so... God, in his graciousness, agrees. God agrees to give Abraham an assurance that goes beyond just words. God is going to demonstrate it to him. And how is he going to demonstrate that the promise is secure? God decides to have a covenant ceremony with Abraham. And in the ancient Near Eastern culture, these kind of agreements were made between nations, uh, between tribes, between individuals, by means of a ritual covenant ceremony. And these ceremonies took a few different kind of forms, but most contained some kind of animal sacrifice. So when God asked Abraham to bring a cow and a goat and a ram and some birds, Abraham would understand that this kind of covenant ceremony is about to take place. And it looks a bit weird to us now, but you just have to go with me and see this is just how they used to do it. So Abraham cuts the animals in two. And he places the two halves opposite each other with kind of a path going down the middle. So you've got these two rows of the halves of animals and a path going down the middle. And the idea was that when two parties wanted to make an agreement with each other, they would divide some animals and then they would both walk together between the pieces to guarantee their commitment to one another. And the statement they were making was, is if I don't keep up my end of the promise, let me be like these animals. So this is a serious commitment. This is like, if I don't follow through, I deserve death the way these animals have been killed. That was the penalty for breaking the covenant was death. So this is not like signing a loan on your car. This is like a serious deal. We're in this for life. And the Hebrew term for this agreement was karat berit. Can you say that with me? Karat berit. There you go. If you learned nothing else today, you learned some Hebrew, which is always helpful. Karat berit, karat meaning to cut, and berit meaning a covenant. The way they would describe this ceremony is they would say, we're going to cut a covenant together. You can see why the word cut was used, because they're doing some butchery here and slicing up these animals. So this seems really strange to us now, but we still actually use phrases like we say, let's cut a deal. So this kind of idea is still within our kind of sense of what it means to make an agreement. And the idea of cutting was very important to these ceremonies. We cut the animals, and if I don't fulfill my agreement, I will be cut like these animals. I will, I'll suffer the same death. And so here's what's interesting about this. Abram's arranged these animals for the ceremonies, for the ceremony, and then he is overcome by a deep sleep and an intense darkness. And God, in this kind of vision that he's having as, as he's asleep, God tells him that his descendants are going to be enslaved in a foreign land for several hundred years, but that God will rescue them and lead them back to the land that he's promised Abraham. So God is saying to him, look, the promise I've made to you is going to be fulfilled, but it's not going to be immediate. There's going to be some stuff that's going to happen first. 
Abraham's children are going to experience suffering and injustice, but God will eventually take them to the land of promise. And then there's this extraordinary thing that happens, this extraordinary part of the vision. Abraham is kind of like, if you can imagine, sitting off to the side, looking at this ceremony that's set up. And he sees a smoking cauldron and a flaming torch go through the animal pieces. Is there anywhere else in the Old Testament that we see smoke and fire? Anyone know? Was that, sorry? Moses, yep, yep, absolutely. So on Sinai, when God's presence comes, you've got the fire and the smoke. And then when God goes ahead of the people into the wilderness, it's a pillar of cloud and of fire, right? So th- this smoking cauldron and this flaming torch are symbols of God's presence passing between these animal pieces. Who's not walking between the animal pieces? Abraham. This is weird. So what's going on? God is cutting the covenant on his own. He's taking both sides of the promise. God is saying to Abraham, not only let me be as these animals if I don't keep the covenant, but he's saying to Abraham, let me be as these animals if you don't keep the covenant. God is accepting the responsibility for both sides of the deal. His promise is so secure that even if Abraham is unable to remain faithful, the promise will be fulfilled. And so just as God promises, Abraham and Sarah have their miraculous son, Isaac, and eventually Abraham's descendants do end up as slaves in Egypt, but just as God had forewarned, he is going to redeem them and lead them into a land of their own. But as you follow the Old Testament story, through their own fear and hard-heartedness, the Israelites struggle to keep a hold of this promise. And when the Old Testament story ends, the nation of Israel has actually been divided and scattered among all the surrounding nations, and only a remnant remain in the land that God had given them. But they remain in a land that's occupied by their, their enemies, some dominant empires who are fighting over the land and who have Israel enslaved. And the overwhelming sense when you get to the Old Testament is that things are not as they should be, and the people are crying out to God that although they've rebelled against him, he seems to have forgotten his promise to their father Abraham. They are demanding and protesting that God rescue them and restore his promise to them. And when the New Testament opens, the Jews are living under Roman occupation, and God's promises do not seem to have been restored to them. Among the religious leaders, there's a belief that if they can keep the covenant laws of holiness, God would once again come down and rescue them from their oppressors. So the idea is if they can keep their half of the covenant, they'll force God's hand to keep his. And the words of the prophets that have come over the years have also developed within them this belief that God's promise is going to be restored through a Messiah, a figure who's going to come and lead Israel in victory against their oppressors and restore their land. And it's into this scenario that Jesus arrives, and he comes declaring and demonstrating the kingdom of God. And the hope that God's promises will be restored is palpable. It's in the air. There's an excitement and electricity around Jesus. And even Jesus' disciples believe that he's going to lead them in an uprising against the Romans and restore the throne to Israel. And it seems that the hope and the longing of the nation is about to be complete in this Jesus Messiah figure. And the hope is never more potent and never more alive than when Jesus makes his way up to Jerusalem. Remember, he's greeted by the people as a conquering king. 
and the expectation is that the time to end the rule and the oppression of the Romans and restore God's promises to the nation is now. But there's a problem. Because worryingly, Jesus keeps talking about his death. And he keeps rejecting these ideas that they're putting on him that he's going to be some kind of military leader. And his disciples hear him say the words, but they don't seem to hear exactly what he means. And eventually, when this belief that Jesus is going to restore God's promises through overthrowing the Romans reaches a fever pitch, Jesus gathers his disciples for a meal. And we read this in Luke 22. It says, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which I poured out for you. Now, we've probably read that passage loads of times. But if we stop and look at the language that Jesus uses here, it's really strange. First of all, Jesus takes a cup and he says, Divide this among yourselves. If you have one cup and a few people, what do you do with it if they all need to drink from it? What word would you use? Share. But what word does Jesus use? That's weird, isn't it? Why would he say divide this cup? And it's kind of hidden from us in our English translations, but the word that's used here, the Greek word that's used, is the same word for cut. Jesus says, cut this cup among you. And then Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it into two. He divides it. So we've got this imagery that Jesus is using of cutting and of dividing things into two pieces. And so if Jesus here is talking about his impending death on the cross, he can't be talking about what that's going to look like because Jesus' body wasn't split in two and he wasn't cut down the middle on the cross. So he's not talking physically about what's going to happen on the cross, but what he's saying to them is he's giving them the meaning of what's about to happen. He's telling them that this, this death that he's going to suffer on the cross is a new covenant. And he's at least in part referencing the covenant ceremony that God undertook with Abraham to confirm that he would keep his promise to him. At that ceremony, God declared that he would accept death not only if he didn't keep his part of the agreement, but also if Abraham didn't keep his part. And so now Jesus is God keeping his promise and restoring the broken covenant. Jesus is both the son of Abraham and the son of God. And he is entering into the brokenness and suffering of Israel and he's taking responsibility for it. And in his death, he will not only receive the consequences for Israel's inability to live out God's promises to them, but he will make a new covenant agreement between God and his people. So this is... Jesus giving them the meaning of what's about to happen so that in the days to come, when his disciples are confused and hurt and fearful over his death, 
when they come to something as basic and fundamental as eating and drinking together, they'll remember what Jesus has done for them. Even when it looks like hope is lost, God is keeping his promises. And on the third day after his death, Jesus was vindicated in his resurrection. His death was not only a necessary suffering for the sins of the people, but it was a renewal of all things for all people who had placed their faith in him. Jesus' resurrection to life provides a glimpse of a future world where death is not the end and provides a hope that sustains us in our present world of brokenness and suffering. And this kind of faith that we place in Jesus is, like Abraham's faith, not an easy faith. It's a hard-fought faith that sometimes involves protest. It's a faith that often cries out that things are not as they should be. I don't know how you've been feeling recently over the last couple of weeks. Just about everywhere you look, it just feels like, God, things are not as they should be. They're not as they should be in the world around us. And they're not as they should be among God's people. And they're not as they should be in us as individuals. But God has promised us a future where there is no more sin and no more pain and no more tears and no more death. But like Abraham, you and I live in a time between the promise that we see in Jesus' death and resurrection and its final fulfillment at the end of things. And we see glimpses of the promise We've been given the Holy Spirit, whom Paul calls a deposit that confirms God's promises to us in Christ. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says this, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen, or the let it be so, is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So there's a promise, and we have a down payment, and we experience the inbreaking of the kingdom in this present moment. But we also need to recognize that Jesus and the writers of the New Testament continually call us to persevere in faith. They draw attention to the now and the not yet. That is that we will see the breaking in of God's kingdom in our present moment in many ways. But in many ways, we don't see its fullness yet. We will experience hardship and persecution and suffering and even death. And in these moments, we call out to God and we cry out for his kingdom to come. We point out to him the ways in which it doesn't look like his promises are being fulfilled. And we are given the right to protest precisely because God has given us the promise of something greater. If he hadn't given us the promise, we'd have no right to speak. But he has said there's a better day coming, and so we can say, how long, O Lord, must we wait? The writer of Hebrews says of Abraham and those who follow in his examples of a hard-fought faith, he says in Hebrews 11, all of these died in faith without having received the promises, but from a distance they saw and greeted them. They confess that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. For people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of the land that they left behind, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better homeland. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed. 
to be called their God. Indeed, he's prepared a city for them. God is not ashamed to be called our God when we desire what is better, what is just, when we desire for things to be made right, when we protest. He is not ashamed to be called our God, and in fact, he has prepared a future for us where those things that we long for and desire are made real. But in the moment when we may be tempted to lose hope in the promise, Jesus has given us something to remind us that God will fulfill his promises to us. At the communion table, we are invited to come again and again and again and again to something simple and fundamental, to eat and to drink and to be reminded by Jesus' words that echo God's covenant with Abraham. It's God who takes responsibility to fulfill the covenant promises, both his part and ours. It's God who will assume our waywardness, our suffering, and our death. And it's God who will bring about a resurrection and a future hope where our suffering is no more, where his kingdom will come on earth in all of its fullness, and where all who trust in him will live forever as the children of Abraham in the land of promise and peace. When we take the bread and the wine in our hands, we experience the presence of the risen Christ through his spirit. And when we eat and drink, although our eyes can sometimes only see brokenness around us, our hearts can have a renewed vision of the promised world to come where all things will be made right. And we're going to do that this morning. We're going to take communion in the hope of what God has promised. And we can come as we are with all that we have. And um, we don't need to um, pretend before God. We can be honest. We can be thankful for what he has done and what he's doing. And we can raise our voice to him and process to say, and this is what is not right. Make it right in the world around us and make it right in me. So I think we're going to hand out the our little individual cups here. Why don't we stand up while we're waiting? Hand these around. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I'll need one of these. I used to live in Texas, and these little things are made in Dallas. Don't know if you know that. That's where, the, that's where these are made. Um, and it doesn't really work with our thing of breaking the bread, but it does kind of work with our dividing the cup, because you have to be kind of a scientist to divide these little things up here. So I think the first thing is you take the little plastic thing off the top, and that's the bread. Let's pray before we take this. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for your covenant promise to us. We're thankful that you are God who has entered into the brokenness of our world 
and into our own sin and that you have taken it upon yourself. We thank you that you gave yourself even unto death to absorb all of our waywardness and all of the evil of this world. To have it buried with you and to overcome it in your resurrection. And we look to you this morning for the hope that each of us needs individually as a church as we look at the events in the world around us and we confess to you that sometimes in our struggle and in our doubt and in our protest we confess that we trust in you that you are our hope that you are our shield and that you are our reward and by taking this bread and this wine this morning we are remembering that you have given us a certain hope and a future. We ask, Lord, for you to reveal it to us in more than glimpses in our everyday lives and in the situations each of us walk in, for us to see your kingdom come in and through us. And where we don't, Lord, we trust in the future hope that you've given us that all things will be made right, that we will gather around the throne of the risen King where all evil is done away with and all suffering and pain and we are left in the worship and glory of your eternal presence. So we take this bread, a symbol of your body given for us and we receive it today as a sign of our hope in you. And Lord, we take this wine the sign of your blood and the new covenant that you have made where you will never abandon or forsake us, but will always be with us. And Lord, we thank you. And we say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sterling Vineyard Sundays podcast. If you want to get in touch with us, please visit our website at sterlingvineyard.co.uk or find us on social media at Sterling Vineyard Church.